my man. Hello, I'm Sean. And I'm Chris. And welcome to the Lack of Focus podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to another episode of Lack of Focus. I am your host today for this episode, Ed, and I'm going to be talking, of course, to my two closest and dearest of friends. One, Mr. Sean Dorsey. Sean, how's it going, my friend? Good, Ed. How you doing? Fantastic. And, of course, our producer extraordinaire, one, Mr. Chris Sheriff. Chris, how's it going? Good, thanks, Ed. Good. All right. In today's episode, I've elected for an interesting main topic, which is in the tabletop RPG arena, sandbox or railroad pros and cons which ones do you like which ones do you prefer what are the goods what are the bads but as always we're going to go through our two and a half hours of what we've been doing lately i will start off with one mr sean sean what have you been doing lately my friend mine's going to be very short absolutely nothing absolutely didn't even play any on the anything in the nothing, nothing on in the, the arcade nothing nope it's been go to work come home sleep you know, type thing. So not even I the have, Steam Deck. No, 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 not 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 this week. It's uh, I treasure sleep more than <laughs> more than arcade or any other type of gaming or fish tanks. Um, simply because it's just I have a busy three weeks coming up. So it's go to work. Well, September was your busy. That, that is too. But this is I've kind of got hit with three different things going on at one time. And they all demand the, uh, how do you put it? It's the, this one's the higher priority over the other one. And, um, and they all want all three of these things done yesterday type thing. And it's just, you know, takes time. So for me, it's, uh, it's literally, you know, get off work, come home, I'll eat and then I'll go to bed. That's kind of my my week, uh, you know, maybe once in a while, shoot a message out to see how Ed's fish tank is doing. But he has that, done that. He has said, I need fish tank pictures. I need to see how it's doing. Um, yeah. Well, on that note, I'll jump in if you don't mind, Sean, real quick, because mine's fairly short as well. And I assume Chris, as usual, is going to carry this. However, however, I have done actual gaming on an actual table and rolled actual dice and played actual 40K. Um, we have a new player that we've been working with the last couple of weeks. We've, I finished my second coaching game where I was basically kind of over uh, Andrew's shoulder. If he had questions, asking him, offering advice. Um, that was two weeks ago. Uh, this week, I just uh, we played an actual game with actual objectives. He and I played, so he played my Tyranids. I played my Sisters of Battle. Um, had a lot of fun. That one actually came out to a tie. I did find myself having to hold back the reins a little because there are situations that I could take advantage of and chose not to. So to make sure, like I actually thought that he was going to win the game, which was kind of the goal, but it turned out accidentally um, that we ended up tying the game, but he didn't lose. So that's good. Um, Slowly but surely we've been introducing new rules and stuff, but it was nice to kind of get to the store and kind of be out there and social, which was a ton of fun. And Chris, you'll be proud of me. I put paint on models. Oh, he's kicking my ass this week. He's going to be awesome. You are I, like the, the champion of the show. So uh, th- this week, uh, give me this week. So legitimately, it's come down to the point where I'm like, all right, tenth edition's coming out. I want to be able to like. It's cr- driving me nuts that the the new guy who is admittedly using my models and and my stuff is playing with a fully painted army, and I'm not. Chad's army's painted. Logan's army's working its way to getting painted. Logan has been getting into a lot of <clears throat> 3D printing, and 
that has its pluses and minuses. Maybe we can cover that at some point in time. Um, but um, in any case, it, it coming back from and Adepticon did this. Coming back from Adepticon, I I had a Saturday. Wife was out with the kids. I'm like, I've got like three hours of nothing else to do. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to pick five sisters of battle. I'm not going to do the whole batch painting. I'm picking five sisters and I'm going to get as far as I can. And with the exception, I've got some, I still got to do highlights. I still need to base them. I need to still need to put the decals on for the armored lady symbol on their, the inner side of their cloak, but they're basically done. So my goal is to finish those up this week and then move on to the next five and then move on to the next five. And just kind of do them in smaller batches. It was much easier and much more manageable instead of trying to do it in a large batch. And I have a reward. I have a goal that I'm looking forward to. Um, one of my favorite models um, that I've played with since I since I got it was the Castigator, the big Predator tank for the Sisters of Battle, which is awesome. And it's not painted yet, so that's going to be my reward. If I get through those 15 girls and get them painted and based, my reward will be to be able to paint the Castigator. And then I've got to bug Chris on painting flesh tones on 30 Sisters for Fensha. Um, because, of course, I, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, whenever we I think I may have when we were at Adepticon, but I found four of the old school metal um, Sisters of Battle at Adepticon, um, which were painted and they were painted in the Armada Lady uh, paint scheme, which was perfect for me. But now I have four Sisters of Fensha painted and none of the others. So now I've got to go, all right. Now I've got to go and paint the rest of them so that they can all be painted. So I'll get through some of those and then I'll pick another tank, maybe the emulator. Maybe I'll do more of involved. I think I'm kind of saving more of involved for the end. She's kind of like the, uh, she's one of the centerpiece models and I really, really want to take my time on her. Um, yeah. But it was kind of nice to sit down, get some painting done. My hope is depending on how crazy the lawn is because it's been raining for like seven, eight days straight here in Winston, Pennsylvania. So I assume that I'm going to have a jungle to cut on Saturday. So assuming that doesn't take me too long, the rest of my day, I'll be able to sit down and get some painting done. And an update for those who are interested, I said I shared this with uh, Sean. I, ha <clears throat> I have pregnant shrimp or shrimp with eggs, nonetheless. So everything in the tank is going well. Um, I don't know if I've even mentioned this or not, but uh, last weekend I went to the store. I took uh, Sean's advice got myself five galaxy rest bore or they are also known as celestial pearl because Pearl they were reclassified as a different fish gorgeous gorgeous fish really really tiny will be very um shrimp friendly and then i got picked up five neons because neons are just a ton of fun and they look great and they're cool schooling fish so now there are 10 fish in there i'm a, I, i'm slowly introducing them haven't seen any levels spikes at all there's a little bit of extra uh, nitrate in there um but that's kind of to be expected because the food uh, feeding has been basically doubled but what that tells me is the tank is cycled well to the fact that i have no ammonia i have no nitrites it's just the plants waiting to soak up all that stuff in the water um it's still at reasonable levels it's only like five parts per million like if you start getting into the 20s and 30s you really should be doing water changes but if you have enough plant uh live plants they'll just soak all of that up and it'll just all clear out. Um, but yeah, so we were, the, this is the thing that I absolutely love because I had an aquarium before we moved out to uh, Columbus for a year. None of my kids seem to remember it. So now that this one is set up, I can't tell you the joy that it gives me to just see the kids walking. It's right there by the entrance to get to the kitchen and they'll walk to and from the kitchen and then they'll just stop just for a couple of minutes. Just take a look. Oh, look, 
the mystery snails doing the thing where it goes to the top of the aquarium and then just drops down. That's cool. Oh, look, there are the shrimp. Oh, look, there are the cute fish. And it was one of my kids that actually pointed out to me, Dad, I think this shrimp is pregnant. She's got eggs. I'm like, I don't know if we're quite ready for that. That, should, that shouldn't have happened yet. But lo and behold, she's got a nice little clutch of eggs. And then as we've been looking over the last two days, I think I've got three or four more that are all clutching eggs. So, yeah, look then, for so how you'll know that she's pregnant, pregnant is right before she releases. Look for the black dots in them. Correct. They're all they're all kind of a yellow green. Yellow, right now. yeah. And yeah. she's kind of holding them under her, holding yeah, under her belly. It's called fanning. They fan yeah. them. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, but that's what they're all doing right now. But they are definitely there, which means in about three weeks or four weeks, uh, we should start seeing some baby shrimp. And I'll know if I did a good job as a shrimp parent by providing enough cover and enough areas for the baby shrimps to hide and enough biofilm in there for them to be able to eat to be able to survive. Yeah, and they'll they'll grow pretty quick to where the Danios and the Tetras won't won't bother them. Well, they won't be able to. I mean, they'll be too big too quick. Correct. It's those first couple of weeks that I'm concerned with. It's the it, it's when they're really really super tiny that they could potentially be food. But my nah, hope is no. Um. So the the pearl Danios will be middle feeders. The Tetras should be top feeders because there's no other competition with if that's the case then any cover you're going to have a bunch of shrimp after the fact right because you don't have a they're not aggressive fish you know they're not they're not hunters so and the danios are so timid you're probably going to need to get 10 to 15 more of those and then probably the same with the tetras to Make it so that they're truly comfortable and all that color will come out. Sure, sure. I, I'm, I'm slowly building. I didn't want to build up the bio load because even the guy that the the owner uh, who actually waited on me at and I will I'll give this a shout out a completely unprompted and unsolicited. Um, if you're in the greater Pittsburgh area, uh, Elmer's Aquarium in Monroeville is by far the single best store in the area. Um, everything is usually homegrown by the guy that actually runs the store, and he was the one that waited me, uh, waited on me. He recommended a number of ten to start off with the Danus, but at ten bucks a fish, I wasn't willing to drop a hundred dollars um, for ten fish at that moment. So I bought five of them, and then I bought five tetras. And then in two weeks, I'm going to go buy five and five again to kind of get those numbers up to ten and ten to have a. Gr- and that's probably where I'm going to top off for a while because I'm about to have well, a shit ton of shrimp. Uh, the shrimp, so shrimp aren't going to add to your bio load, like the, the bio no, the way that fish do, um, because they're kind of the end result of the biomass. They're the ones that are eating all the crap to make it so that your tank isn't developing nitrites, nitrates, and that ammonia cycle uh, per se. Um one thing, so you got to remember, so you have a 29-gallon tank. That's 30 by 12. In the surface area, it's 360 square inches of surface area. For the size of fish you're putting in there, you could probably have, if you have good filtration, you could probably have 50, 60, 70 tetra-sized, small, one-inch or less-sized fish in that with good filtration and the plants. So, so you got to remember that. So, so always remember... When they talk about one inch of fish per gallon yeah. of tank, I, I've never that's heard a of static, that. That's a static tank. That's if you threw them in water and did nothing. You know, that's your 
you know, and then you did water changes and everything else because that's how you would deal with it. When you add plants, you're kind not totally doubling it. If you heavily plant, you're not doubling it fully, but you know, let's just say one and a half times. And then if you have any kind of filtration, especially if you have like hang on back, oversized, good water movement, good surface water movement, because the key is surface water movement. That's what sure gets is. the carbon dioxide out, and that's what gets you know all the crap that's water column driven that goes to the air out. And then it also is how you're getting oxygen into your tank is right. by agitating the surface. So I have, um, an, I have an AquaClear 70, which is designed for a 70 gallon tank, which is quite honestly double what I need for the hang on the back. Oh yeah. Do, it's, it's well, well more than you would ever need, but. And I have an air stone in there. I just put a, an air bar in there just to be able to get some of the, get some of that yep. surface agitation going in. So I feel yeah. like it's, it's the ideal situation as I could possibly make for these but, little shrimp. And the other thing is, is that you, most of your plants are rooted plants. They so, are. so they're getting their stuff through a depleted water column because, you know, you're agitating up higher. So not as much as going down. You'll probably want to get like root tabs. Yeah, that's, that's probably the next thing on my list to get for them. Keeping in mind, though, there it, it does have that soil substrate. So it's soil. It's um, so that'll run out, though, over time. It, and that only will. has... You are and that correct. only has the certain of the nutrients. It doesn't have all the macronutrients. So you'll want, you know, some type of root tab that'll last, you know. I need to get those long, um, not tweezers, but like those long forceps. Yeah, they're, they're tongs. There's to they're tongs, yeah. tweezers. There's, yeah, I have a bunch in the cabinet behind me here. But yeah, so so those are the things. You're going to be able to have a lot of fish in that tank. Like I have a, I'll have a 20 long, which is the same footprint. As a 29, it's it's a 30, 30 by 12 in footprint. Ooh. So, but it's it's you know what nine gallons less. So figure that whatever that height is, that's less. And I'm gonna try to jam like 50 fish in that thing with shrimp, you know. But I also bought a I bought a, a canister filter. So oh, there you go. I'm gonna run canister filter. I bought co. I'm gonna run co2 in the tank too. Um, they actually what, what, came out. Why do you want to run the CO2? Is there certain plants that you need that you feel that you need the CO2 in? I want growth. So one of the things about about balance in your tank is it's all about plant growth. So how do plants grow in your tank? Well, you either have to, you know, overfeed the tank, you know, have a huge biomass, overfeed the tank, or supplement feed them. So I'm going to do. That's called Easy Green from Aquarium Co-op is what yep. I'm going to use with Easy Iron and a couple other things for the plants. But then if you run CO2, the plants can utilize that better and it knocks the algae load down. So yeah, like, don't you want some of the so algae I'm for not, the shrimp? No, I'm, I'm going to feed the shrimp. So I'll, I'll feed them, you know, greens. I'll buy the bark stuff that you can feed them, you know, all the different types like of the, foods you can do like the leaf litter too that you can do for that yep. leaf litter uh you can do was like zucchini you know you can throw zucchini, I tried zucchini. It floats to the top uh just put a weight on it you know get a fish weight oh yeah i've seen those people that have like those magnetic ones you can kind of stick yep. to the side yeah, stick I've got, to the side. i'm gonna do a lot of live one. i'm gonna do a lot of live like uh either frozen like brine shrimp and daphnia and all of those things for the fish, because that'll make them brighter and 
you know, more, the, the it's more expensive. The, the thing it, with the daphnia that I'm worried about is that I might get an infestation. Like, they just will grow out of control. No, do you do frozen? You don't do... Oh, you do the... Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, do frozen daphnia and then do brine shrimp. You know, either get a brine shrimp breeder or... And I'm going to try to do both over time is live brine shrimp, shrimp because that'll be great for the smaller danios and... And I'm going to do a raspora tank. Everything I have will be rasporas. Um, and no, I'm, lo- I'm loving those um, galaxy ones. They are gorgeous. They really are. Yeah, I bought a uh, piece of driftwood that'll be the length of my tank. It's it's you know looks Ooh. like a tree branch that's you know all all you know has different branches and stuff. But I'm going to do a you've lot. Seen the, you've seen the driftwood that I put in mine. Yeah, yeah, I've seen your pictures. Yeah, mine won't be as big as yours. Mine will be. It's like a stick, basically, with branches. You know, it's just like a little branch off a tree that's going to go in, and it'll be the length of the tank. And then I bought a light, which I haven't bought a plant light in years. But oh, I boy, bought a... was that, that was a shock for me, too, like the new plant lights they have. Yeah, so I got a Fluval plant light. It's a 6,500K, 24 to 34-inch, 32-watt light, and the damn thing's Bluetooth. Yeah. I'm like, and they're all LEDs now. Like I remember back yeah. in the day, if I want, if I wanted to get a plant bulb, you needed to quite literally get a plant fluorescent bulb for your tank yeah. hood thing. That's how I grew plants before. When I got this thing, when this thing, because it came with the tank, I was like, "There's no way plants are gonna grow off of this." But damn, if I'm wrong, um, it yeah. has two settings. It has the white light for you because the fish don't care. Um, but it then has the black light in that for plant growth. And I've got plant growth coming out the ass. It's doing really well. Yeah. In my tank. So I won't put any fish, shrimp or anything until I plant out the tank. That's exactly what I did. And, you know, I'm kind of, I'm still bashing myself on the planting side of it right now, just because I don't totally know what I want yet. I'm a huge Anubius Crip fan. And I'm a huge Valisanalia fan. And no, why did you recommend the uh, the Amazon swords? I mean, don't get me wrong; they're gorgeous. I like them. I I will not do an Amazon sword unless it's like a pygmy sword or something. You have a tall tank, so you can do that's that you can do sense. a sword plant. Yeah, I'm, if you could find a uh, Amazon lace sword, that would be gigantically beautiful in your tank. You well, know. I do have a little bit of, I don't, so what I don't want to do is I don't want to overplant it because I'm trying to allow for, allow for some growth. Um, oh, so we'll see how it goes. No, no, you overplant, trust me. I know, I know. That's what you're supposed to do. I, the way I figure it in the next three weeks or the next month or two, it's going to be overplanted. It's always interesting whenever I hear the term, because I've been watching a lot of videos on, you know, shrimp raising and what, you know, what are the best tank mates. And everyone's like, everyone always uses the term heavily planted, but I've never heard anyone define what heavily planted means as opposed to medium planted or lightly planted. So that, so for me, that, that 360 square inch footprint on the bottom, Mm -hmm. with the exception of the rocks that I put in and the exception of the driftwood I put in, every square inch will be planted. Okay. I see what you mean. That's, that's heavily planted. Now I've got to figure out if I want to do carpeting since I'm doing CO2 I have to figure out like how I want, like what I want to use to carpet it um, so that it's better for the shrimp. I don't know if I right. want to do, I'm thinking about doing matted uh, moss, you know, Java moss or Ooh, something like that. Java moss is gigantic. That's a good, because that gives, it, that gives the babies a place to hide too. 
Yeah. But I, I don't know yet. I, I'm still figuring it out. Um, I got to get the, I got to get the layout done first with the driftwood. Then I can add the rocks, you know. So basically, I have to do the dry setup before I do anything. Sure. What rocks are you thinking? Of? I went with um. I dragonstone. dragonstone. That's dragonstone what I went with. I'll, I'll either do black lava, that's the inert black lava, or dragonstone because dragonstone is awesome because for your bacterial bacteria needs, it's yep. got pockets in it and. Little baby shrimp can hide in there, and they give them a good yep. place to hide if they need to. Yep. That, my dragonstone, I think, will mostly be. I'll have either like Java ferns, Anubias, um, maybe cover them in, you know, mosses. I don't know yet. I haven't figured it out. I bought dragonstone, but I haven't figured out what I'm going to do with them yet because I don't have a layout yet. You know, my tank, my stand is literally sitting a foot to the right of me right now, which isn't where it's going but I built it so I could get the true measurements off of it. Cause yeah, it's going to my idea. bedroom. It's going to my bedroom next to my bed. The whole setup is. So I had to see this, the plant stand, but I built that over the weekend and then it's been sitting here since. So it tells you how my week's going. Cause well, if it makes you feel any better, like, so again, I will give Elmer's aquarium a shout out. I knew my tank layout before I got home. Because what they quite literally did is they said, well, what's the measurements of your tank? And I gave the measurements and they literally have an area where you can put everything down and set the rocks. And I just took a photo. So like once we set the rocks up and we sent the driftwood, we knew where things were going to go. I just took a photo. And then when I came home, I just put them in that same setup that we set up in the store and it fit perfectly. Yeah, that's the way to do it. If you can like I did that something similar to that with, you know, on the shelves at the fish store I went to, we have a, a good one. You know, it's a good fish store, but I, I think it lacks in a few things is just because it's not that big. You know, they went from a much bigger space to a smaller space when uh. they moved. But, you know, once again, it's, you know, it, even though I do that, I, I'll i change my mind by the time I do it. Because I'm going to use the, it's the strata, uh, stratum, it's the fluval, whatever it's called. Uh, it's the plant uh, stuff from fluval that you can buy um, uh, it's a little it's kind of like fluorite in a way you know because fluorite's another big one um and then i bought then i changed my mind so i bought all that and then i decided i'm going to use that as a plant base and then i bought some black gravel to go over the top well so, now i'm already, I'm already thinking i need a second tank because i need like a a um what am i thinking a quarantine tank you're gonna do it a 10 gallon tank will be enough yep um, um, I, re I recommend the uh the fluval flexes for stuff like that i think they're amazing tanks um yeah, makes, filter, yeah. yeah fluval that's what i got my go to yeah fluval is yeah. what i go to now just because a you're getting the bang for the buck out of fluval yeah you know if you win ada a mono you know or a mono you know, you're gonna pay a bazillion dollars for a sixty a sixty centimeter tank, you know, that it's That's they're cool something. tanks, you know, but it, it's insane what you pay in this, you know, the it's fish, an expensive hobby. It really is. But I bought, I bought the fish tank, it's twenty five bucks because you know Yeah, that's the cheap part. The actual twenty gallon long, you know, it's a twenty long, it's you know, um you know, the cover was more expensive than the tank, the lid. Yep. The light was, because it's a fluval light, it's not as expensive as if you go to the other brands of lighting and stuff. 
you know, where I think I paid 99 or 109 for this. And then I had pet Petco points that took <laughs> off of it and stuff. And, you know, so uh, the coolest thing I found though, so I used to do, do deep DIY um, CO2. So you take two, two liter bottles. Yeah. I've seen put, this uh, one. You, the, you know, you put um, yeast in it with sugar and then fill it, you know, about halfway with water. And then you get CO2 reactivity with it. Well, they have these new, new kits now. They have new kits now where, so it's a CO2 generator. They're called CO2 generators. And it comes with, I bought the big tank. So it comes with like a four liter or whatever it is tank. And then you buy citric acid and baking soda. Mm. And then water. And then that's your CO2. So now I have a giant canister it's an aluminum spun canister it comes with the it comes with you know all the stuff you need the gauge the gauges for the tank the, the pressure gauge going out the bubble counter um it comes with a um the hell is it a solenoid valve so i'll turn it to be able to turn it i bought a uh um a digital uh it's a power strip where it has a day night cycle so oh, you that's can, cool so I'm going to have at night, I'm going to have a sponge filter in the right back corner that will turn on at night to provide oxygen for the fish and everything in there. Plus, it'll agitate all the CO2 out overnight, too, because your plants will generate CO2 overnight. So I'll get it out and then it will shut off my CO2 tank, too. So I'll have that set up. So I'll have daytime CO2. The light is automatic. You set it up with an app on your phone so that'll be on and off in itself by itself um or you can have it always on and have it where i can run it off the power strip and then at night i bought these they're usb connected um air pumps they're real quiet mm. and then that'll that'll run my um that'll run my filter at night so it's just a you know all it is is a sponge filter you know with a sponge filter yeah, on that. And then what we'll be running constantly, I'm going to do a spray bar with my canister filter. So canister filters just to move water. When the light's on, the concept is oxygen is generated from the plants. So that's the concept in day. When the light goes off, the sponge filter kicks on. The sponge filter will start up and bubble out overnight when the light's off. And then... When the daytime comes, you have CO2 and light come on at the same time, and then all your oxygen is provided by the plants. That's a way more complicated setup than I was going for for this tank. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a true, this is a true high-tech setup, you know. I but agree. The, the CO2 kit that I found, though, is just amazing. It's, you know, for, it was 89 bucks, and I had to buy the, the chemicals separate, but 89 bucks and... I'll have CO2 for the next two years out of the amounts that I have and the amounts that I'm going to use because um, it's a small tank. So, you know, it's not going to cost me much where if I use CO2 cylinders where you exchange them out, it would cost 10 times more to do it that way than yeah. this way. So that's interesting. Yep. So yeah, that's the uh, the aquarium update. Um, uh, other than that, uh, I've not done any more tinkering with my uh, my Steam Deck, but I've been enjoying it and having fun with it. Um, that's good. So, all right, that's me. I was gonna say as well when you guys come out to Calgary for a visit, 
you think the sentry box is impressive. The uh, the pet shop I go to in Calgary uh, is uh, thirty thousand square feet. Holy Toledo! High seas. Yeah, that's bigger that's than the sentry box. Um, yeah, as you say, well, that's bigger than some like Petco's and PetSmart's too. Yeah, yeah right. Is it, so this is a a Calgary owned business that's been going since nineteen seventy five. Started off in a nine hundred square foot shop, and it's now thirty thousand square feet. At Pisces Pet Emporium. It's amazing. They have like a, a full um, koi pond with like m- moss wall waterfall in the back. You can go and feed your fish. It's like going um, to Bass Pro Shop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a Bass Pro in Calgary as well. In uh, wow, Crossiron Mills. Yeah, um, I'm, lo- yeah, I'm looking them up. Oh, if you check our Facebook chat, I posted you an article because they have a blog as well um, for the recommendations for ten aquarium plants for Ooh. stunning aquascapes. Ooh. But yeah, just thought I'd throw that in. Pisces Pet Emporium. Yeah, I've been using them since I moved to Canada. Um, that's where I bought the first lot of dog food from because it was near where I used to work. But now we make for driving to Calgary to go there rather than doing the um, the stores in Cochrane because it's it's amazing. You always need a good good fish store, just like a good local game store. You need one of each. Uh-huh. All right, Chris. I will. I yeah, you do. I will <laughs> kick the ball over to you, good sir. And I just posted the CO2 tank so you can see it. Yeah, I want to see that. I'm de- I'm going to have to put some debate into that. Oh, that's nice. That is nice. Yeah. All right, Chris, all yours. What have you been up to lately? Um, I'm working, working after the kids. Joe's back to work now. So I've been trying to catch up on all of my stuff I couldn't do while I was off sick. And Joe's been um, doing work. So I've also been parenting. So. I played a couple of games of X-Wing. I was um, I had a two-game le- losing streak with my uh, Separatist squad. Uh-oh. I, I was fine. I'm just If I play very specifically in certain missions, I can do well with it. But the second, every time I try and push it past that point, it just all falls apart. So uh, I kind of went back to drawing board and decided on a rebel list instead, which... I don't really enjoy Rebels. I find them dull and boring. I'm like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to take Rebels. So I made a list and posted it in Discord. And then we, I had a game with it last night on TTS with Matt, um, who's been the reason... He's been thumping me with his Resistance squad. Uh, he was punishing my Separatists. So, I mean, I don't really blame a Separatist for that. It was like a 50-year... Technology <laughs> difference. It's like taking Spitfires up against uh, Migs or something. That's my Kinda, excuse yeah. anyway. That's a good, that's a good analogy, actually. Um, but yeah, he's been um kicking my ass a little bit there. But I finally got a win with the Rebels yesterday. Didn't think it was going to go as well as it it did, but I kind of swung in the mid game. I had it. Uh, I sold out Keel too easily. Um, early so i think they died in turn three um and i stand by the fact that keel should have lived um i think there was an 85 percent chance uh keel survives and didn't what are you gonna sometimes, do sometimes that's how the dice roll oh, it was i mean i was just like oh and keel's really so and you will have no idea what i'm talking about now Keo is the A-Wing pilot from Squadrons, if you play through a campaign. 
Okay. Um, and obviously, when you're playing squadrons, you can do like the swoop, the side swip maneuvers, but and the drifting um, when you're doing like boosts and stuff like that. So yeah, Geo's ability is that when the force is, um, they have one force charge that is non-recurring, so it doesn't just naturally regen every turn. But if your force charge is deactivated, so you've spent it, you can when you dial in a turn or a bank. You can treat it as a side slip, so you drift sideways and then recharge your force. Ooh. And because it's an A-wing, you can do like a two hard out the side, then boost because you're an A-wing. Or you can like barrel roll into and link it into a boost. So you get some really crazy positional stuff. So I was really excited. Kind of like how a whisper used to fly. Um yeah, it was pretty it's very more like echo. But sort of, yeah. Yeah. Um only you have to go forward. You can't tilt the template backwards, but you can yeah. also use the turns. But yeah, um, really good. Really good fun. But I also got them dead on turn three, so I was a little bit sad. Aww. But then I managed to kill uh, Kazuno, Sayono, and BB-8 in one turn. Mm. And, um, well, I'd taken Kaz down to two, two hits left, and BB-8 had chipped a shield off him already. So it wasn't like it. It was lucky. It, it was less lucky than I was unlucky for Keo to die. So I wasn't overly disappointed. But um, yeah, I did. I still didn't think the game was over. But then I got. I I just ran away and regened and tried to be near objectives because all of my ships were pointing in the wrong directions. That had it been like another half hour of a game. Maybe it would have swung again because he had full damn run with a bunch of upgrade stuff. So he had the ace on the table, and I had Luke who was bleeding and didn't have brought on tops left. So, um, yeah, that that's the only real game I've played. I think I had one more game of Water Ring since we spoke. Ooh, um, how's that going? Um, I've not had time to do any more painting or anything. So just to say, Moria Goblin Army. I actually undercoated the rest of it apart from the balrog because uh, i'm going to do some green stuff work on the balrog when i get time um so that's some progress but i have to do so i go back to the uk in 10 days we we leave technically it's nine days is when we leave 8 30 p.m our flight is a week on saturday so before i leave i have to paint my Eldari, Eandon, uh, Ghost Warrior, Boarding Patrol, so I can play boarding action um, at Warhammer World. Then we're also not sure if there'll be boarding action terrain set up for us at Warhammer World, so I have to paint the boxes of scenery that are behind me for a kill team and boarding patrol box. So how, many da- how many days? Nine? Yeah. Um, You'll be fine. Well, I've not finished yet, Ed. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not allowing myself to start painting my stuff until I've finished one of the commission things that have been hovering over me for all eternity. So I've got to do um, six Death Shroud and two White Ward Terminators. Oh, those would be fun. Those are good uh, models. They, they would be fun if they were for me, and I hadn't already painted a bunch of them, and I just don't want to paint them. Uh... Um. So yeah, they'll be. It'll get done. I'm hoping I can kind of get them done in a day because it's only tabletop standard um i need to pick out the, the metal trim put a couple of washes over them 
I do um, a Thornian camo shade and then um, spot pick out bits in um, Agrax Earth shade and um, Reichlin flesh shade to kind of just have different dirty bits on them. Then a light dry brush to do some highlighting and then pick out like the tentacles and all of the goopy bits and weapons and stuff. It's not yeah. too bad. But yeah, I don't really. I'm not. <sighs> They've been sat there for ages waiting to get done. So. I need to get them finished. Yeah. Um, so I've got to do that first. So hopefully that'll be my Sunday because I have to do um, the Dice tax return stuff for on Saturday. I have an appointment with the accountant on Saturday evening for him to tell me how of all the things I've been doing wrong because I have to have an accountant now as well. So that'll be a fun, expensive day. That'll be a fun day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's been my life. Um, I'm almost over being ill again. Um, still got sore throat, what knows, which is probably why I sound a little bit more mumbly than I normally do. I took note of that whenever we I first signed on. I was like, oh, you do sound like you're like a little horse there. Yeah, it's called a pony. I thought you were going to go the opposite direction, go heresy, but <laughs> oh, a little horse. <laughs> Pony, stuff like yeah, it is a funny. It's a good joke. I do it. Like, I'm a dad now. What can I say? <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. That's my flight deck. You know, I'm not gonna keep us going for too long. It'll be fine. Ooh. All right, then we're gonna get into the main topic for the game uh, for the show tonight, and that is going to be for your tabletop RPGs, the old sandbox style or the railroad. So I figure I'm going to try at least a definition of each. Um, so let's start off with uh, the old railroad. I think the railroad's probably the one that most people are probably familiar with, even if they're not entirely certain of it. Um, you have, in my opinion, two varieties of railroad. You have the traditional railroad, which is a campaign that a DM has already laid out in their head. They have the beginning, the middle, all the beats along the way leading towards an end goal that the DM is driving for. Now, that can either be through published material, as in they're playing a very specific um, campaign setting from a book or something like that, and you kind of have to go the whole way through. Curse of Strahd's kind of... Yeah, that one kind of actually is a mix. That Curse of Strahd's probably a bad one, actually. Um, but whenever you have those adventures that are all tied together, like, oh, if you start with this adventure here, this one here, this one here, this one here, and it runs you through the whole story and takes your characters from 1 to 20, that's probably a really good example of a railroad campaign. Um, the other style of railroading, in my opinion, is like the amusement park style where you get on this ride and then you get on this ride and you get on this ride, but they're all predefined. So those are the small, like one or two session adventures, the little booklets you get in that you can kind of just pick and pick and choose whichever way you want to go. Just like an amusement park. I'm going to ride on that one first and then I'm going to ride that and then I'm going to ride that. And then last, of course, is the sandbox style. Now, I know sandbox is kind of like one of those words that over time, because you hear it a lot in video games, you hear that a lot in a lot of areas, um, but specifically with sandbox style, that's really the DMs kind of just there as a referee. Um, it's really supposed to be the players choose where they go and what they do. Do they spend three weeks playing Village Simulator? Do they take over the kingdom and become a ruling body and then decide to invade the friendly nation next to them because they want the resources, whatever it is they choose to do the DM for the most part, it's probably the one where the DMs has to be the most agile 
because you have no idea what the player, players are going to come in with, and you have to kind of be prepared to generate all that stuff pretty much on the fly to kind of keep the story going. So that's where we're going to start with those basic definitions. I'm sure that they can be mutable, a little bit of alterations here or there. But Chris, I think I'll start with you. Do you have a preference on the style of game that you either play or run and why? Uh, so I will say that I just posted in the Discord on tabletop and RPGs uh, the best descriptor for um, a sandbox versus a railroad that I've ever seen. And it's an old Matt Coville video from when he used to make good content. I mean, not throwing shade, the guy's done a great job, but this was the heyday of the content I thought, think he made. And like, it's one of the viral videos that put him on the map. Hmm. But um, it, it's a really good, I'm not going to do his bit, but the bit is he's talking about The Hobbit and how Bilbo's telling, telling Frodo about this awesome D&D game he played in where he went to go and do this, this and this, and then Frodo's like, oh man, I really want to do this. Get, I'll get my friends together and we'll play D&D. And then he go to Rivendell and like, Elrond's, there is but one choice. You have to do this. And, right, you can, uh, well, I'm going to go over a mountain. You can't go over a mountain. You're going to go through a mountain. There is one choice. Yeah, one choice. That's it. Oh, you want to go over a mountain? Well, uh, looks like it was an avalanche. Can't do it. Oh, man. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess I guess it does make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's um, a really good example of a railroad. Yeah, right, Bilbo's the yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna these trolls. I'm just gonna keep them talking, and right, and then what are we gonna? I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna steal this ring. I'm not gonna fight this dragon. No, no, no. I don't care about a dragon. I can go and die over there off screen. Yeah, I can do that somewhere else. I don't have to go in there, but that's what the adventure is. Yeah, not for me. I'm not doing that. Yeah. That's a really interesting... I'm going to have to watch that video after yeah. we're done. It's really good. Um, as for preferences, it depends. I, I think both are valid as long as you know what the score is before you go into the game. Sure. It's a player, that is. Of course, because sandboxes, I would say, are fairly heavily driven by players and their choices. Right, there's times where, as a player, you don't want to play a sandbox. Do you want to play a Monster of the Week? Just, you know, tell me what we, where are we going, what are we doing? And, and that comes down to play style as well. It's kind of a good topic for another time. But like the, the, the hack and slash, the, you know. And not even that, Sean, like the, the um, I, I want to say, character of your players. So are you a passenger in the game? Are you, do you want to be a director? You know, are you literally just wanting to be the murder hobo? Do you want interparty like conflict and role-playing as aspects and elements? Like all of those different things that players can want. If you are just want to be a passenger, turn up, hang out with your friends, then a railroad, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Because I believe that, when you have the conversation of sandbox versus railroad, pardon the pun, but railroad generally gets railroaded into being the bad guy out of the two. When I yeah. do think, but it, I do think it's of merit and has its reasons for existing. And it's interesting to me that railroads always seem to get a negative connotation in the fact, like, oh, well, the DMs, like, there's no real flexibility. We can't. But you're correct in the fact, at least a lot of the players that I have played with prefer that style. 
they like the idea of the adventure of the week, monster of the week kind of thing. It depends. You're correct in the fact it really it's you have it depends on the players that you have in your group. If you have those type of players that are a hundred percent willing to basically take a take a world and make it their own, it almost writes itself. And as the DM, your sole responsibility is to put obstacles in their way that go along with the story and be prepared to do that on the fly. Um, because you you can prepare this fantastic dungeon, you can spend three weeks defending, but if the players decide to go left down the road instead of right, all the work you put into it's gone. And you have to kind of be prepared for that kind of thing. And and that's kind of like part of it as well. Of like if if you you guys have, as players decide that instead of going into a dungeon that's just there, you want to chase butterflies around the outside, then you've just like fucked up the session for lack of a, lack of a better word, haven't you? Like there's got to be buy-in from both sides. Like I've tried to run um, a West March style game. Uh, which is inherently the most sandbox you can get because it is entirely player driven. Like the, the players plan when they're going to meet up again next, what they want to do. And then the, the DM makes the session around what the players want to do. But it, you've got to have the right personalities and the, the people who want to do that. I, I like um, how to phrase it. So like, I played in. Um, a game with Greg, um, uh, Daniel was running, which was um, a very it, it was like a whole a homebrew setting, and there was a, a big war, like diplomatic stuff going on, and we'd all been gathered and fellowship style. We'd been like individuals from different uh, countries have been put together to go and attend this big diplomatic conference, and we spent like six, seven weeks of real world time making the journey there because it was like a long way away and there were dangers along the way then we got there and the conference was like it didn't happen it was fades to black conferences happened this is what was decided and that, and that felt very anticlimactic agree because like i didn't mind the railroad of getting to the conference that's fine i had no problem with that but once we were there like there was no agency. There was no point in having done it because we didn't make, you know, our characters weren't involved. Had nothing to do with it at all. Yeah. So I, one part of that railroad was good. The other part was really bad. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can get that. I, I, you want it to be worth it. You want it to feel like the stuff that you've put into it made a difference. That's why everyone kind of leans in like, oh, well, if I do a, if we did it more sandbox style, all of the decisions we made, like, like if we do the railroad style, the, the, the plot is basically laid out for us. And it's just which there may be little eddies along the way, but we're going to get to that end no matter what. We're going to get to the big bad. We're going to fight the big bad guy at the end, the end kind of thing. So for, for Strad, I, I don't know that you guys know how much of a sandbox you were actually in, because at any point, you guys could have just been on Team Strad. There were ways out of Ravenloft without even interacting with Strad. There were things that you could have done and chased and researched, and there were different things you could have done that just take away from interacting with that scenario in any way, shape, or form. Because I didn't want to, I wanted to run a sandbox. 
Well, what was interesting too, and I, I get that I was just talking about this uh, earlier in the week. This is what actually prompted this conversation is when we, I was talking about this with some other friends, um, your version of Curse of Strahd. I, I had mentioned that we had played it and someone went, oh, well, how did you guys handle X, Y, Z situation? And we were never in that situation at all. I forget what it was that he had said, but whatever that situation was. And then I had to go back and explain, well, okay, it was Curse and Strahd. Curse of Strahd inspired because Chris put a very heavy sprinkling of his own style into it. And I don't know, having played that, that we actually played Curse of Strahd. We we played parts of it for sure, but there were plenty of other parts that I feel were completely different from the story that was laid out. There were a lot of differences, but that's, and they all evolved from the choices you guys were making and what you wanted to do. But, um, well, I imagine the, there was a bunch of stuff in Kresik that you guys didn't get to. Um, you missed out on a lot of the Balaki stuff. Um, mm. And you missed out on the Amber Temple entirely. Um, That's what it was. That was, was. I think that might have been the temple he was talking about. And I'm like, yeah, I don't yeah. think we ever went there, ever. Yeah, and that's basically you... Um, Spoilers, obviously, for Curse of Strad. Yeah, for those of um, you that haven't played it, um, you get to interact with a lot more of the dark powers. So Sean, Sean would have been able to interact with his new Patreon. The um, you all could have taken dark gifts to kind of start to rival Strad as the baddies. Fight. Um, yeah, basically, you get to em- embrace the inner evil, and then it becomes evil Highlander. There can be only one. And we'll have a bunch of interparty, and again, that that would have been my take on that setting. Sure, but you can go research the Anima Temple stuff, get a little bit more information, then use that to to your advantage, and it kind of explains more about what Ravenloft is, and why Strad's trapped there, and all of that kind of stuff. Was is. the was the Lich part of Strad? Because I, I no, uh, so okay, the Lich, just... so yes and no, the Lich exist as um, an amalgamation of two characters one of them is not is mentioned in the module and then the actual lich himself is in the amber temple ah okay see but i kind of like like it's interesting to me because i remember whenever i proposed playing curse of Strahd because i'd always i'd never gotten the chance to play the original ravenloft and the reason why i wanted to play it's because like this is one of those ones i'd never done and really wanted to try it and it's sort of like, I don't know, and I'm, I'm going to go back, the first time that you ever play through a, uh, one of those role-playing games like Mass Effect. Mass Effect's probably a great example. Your first Mass Effect playthrough from beginning to end is always going to be your canon Mass Effect. Like, whichever decisions you made were the ones that were supposed to happen, whichever companion you ended up um, choosing as your love interest in either all three of the games, there's going to be the canon choices that Shepard would have made. And the ending that you chose at the end, I'm not going to spoil anything, is going to be your canon ending. And every other playthrough is just like, oh, what would have happened if I'd have gone this way? But it's not my canon ending. So there's a big, big part of me that feels that that is now my canon version of Curse of Strahd. So even if I read it now and ran it again, it would just feel like playing Mass Effect 2 for, or Mass Effect 3 for the third or fourth time. Like, I, oh yeah, there's, there's a different way you could have gone, but we didn't do that. That's not what we did. Yeah. If you sit and read Curse of Strad cover to cover, 
I think you'll have a new appreciation for how much work I actually put in to making you guys have the fun you got to have. Well, and because that campaign in, lasted for in, almost two years, didn't it? In my opinion, the correct way to play Curse of Strad is after you've finished a module, like you've finished the starter box stuff that gets you to level five, you go in at level five, you level up every effectively every week because you play you play this area, and it's basically exactly like a computer game. You're in the level five area now, and you move to level six area, move to level seven area, and there's like two points that just, in the game that just fuck you over. There's the hags. If you just wander into the hags at level five, and all three of them are there, right? Just get wrecked. You're screwed. Right. Well, it's not even that. I think you guys leave the death house at level three. And you can theoretically walk straight into a windmill at level three, and you're just dead. Like, you're, <laughs> I, I mean, and there was a lot of plot hooks that could have taken us there fairly easily. Yeah, there's, and that's all in the book. Like, there's a bunch of stuff in the book designed to make you go from here to here. And my main problem with Curse of Strad, as written on the railroad sense, and this is why I don't like some railroads, just to keep us on the main topic is that Curse of Strad, at its core, is a story about Strad and Arena. Yes. You guys are just passengers to that story. Yes, I I agree with that. And I I gave you guys the options many times to just, like, Arena can just go over there and die, I don't care. Because she, like, you guys told her story, but that was the choices you made. It wasn't necessary to the the thing. No, I have a greater appreciation for like I said, it, it, that that is always going to be my canon playthrough of Curse of Strahd from now on. Even if I were to pull it off the shelf and run it for someone else, it would just be like my third or fourth uh, play, what, playthrough. What happen is when you DM Curse of Strahd, you're gonna message me like, "I need <laughs> all of your notes on this bit because it, the module doesn't make sense, and I need to add all of the stuff you added in." That's well, true. They did a re-release of it for that reason, right? Like just the way that no, the, it, the, it all. So I'm not. Yeah, I don't mean all as in in a disparaging sense. The things that they changed were to remove, um, like problematic, um, uh, references. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. So all, all like not every Vistani you meet happens to be a drunk in the new Curse of Strad, but not all evil, um, Romani travelers, you know. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. it's a bunch gotcha. of stuff gotcha. like that. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't change the story at all. Oh, okay. Then never mind. Yeah, Sean, you've been strangely silent on this, so I'm going to kind of kick in your direction. What are your thoughts on the old railroad versus? Do you want the Do you want the short answer or the long answer? Because this is lack of focus. I want the long answer. Okay, so I, I view D and D, I think, different than people that play it today. Because if I'm going to play D and D with a group. I'm going to build a campaign. So I'm going to have, I'm going to have my point A to point D. That'll be the entire campaign program, you know? So we, when we talk about Curse of Strahd, you're talking about, it's basically a campaign in a really small book, you know, cause you're going from level one or two up to level 10. And with other stuff that, that wizards have done, you can go up to level 20 now in two books. You know, you'll have 
I think the Tiamat one was two books and you could hit level 20. Well, it all depends. To, okay, first off, you have to define what what is the... So if you go back to first edition D&D, there's no way on the planet Earth that you could go in a module unless you really built it out. There's no way you could go from level one to level 10 in a module, you know, in a book. It wasn't built that way. So first off, you have to define what's the ultimate goal for your campaign. Is it to hit level 20, you know, in the fastest way possible so your people are basically gods of the land? Or are you playing D&D for a, the long run, you know, for that long-term piece? And then when we talk about railroading to sandbox, to me, the campaign, so the overall campaign is a pseudo sandbox. So the players can at times pick where they want to go, but you have to be flexible as a DM if you're going to run it that way to be able to move your program with that. So you're kind of railroading them at the same time in that program that you're trying to run. And I'm a project manager. So one of the keywords in project management is the golden path. So to for a project to work, there, there are key elements in a path. Now you can have things that go off the path that are offshoots that feed the whole end project. But for the project to be on time, you have to hit the key pieces that are on the golden path. And when I view when I view a module, so if you're running a module, then it also depends where you're at. So we were in Curse of Strahd, you're mostly over land. You're in a town you're going to, you know, a cave, you're going here, but most of it is an overland journey, which I think creates the impression that it could be more sandboxy than railroady, you know, because like when we played, Chris gave us choices. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And most of the time we hemmed and hawed because we really, I don't think we really understood other than Greg really understood the point, you know, what yeah. the true end goal was. And I think it's proven out by all the stuff that we missed in, in that module. If you're in an underground, so let's say you're in a dungeon, a dungeon is a physical railroad automatically, you know? So you enter, you enter this cave, the, the opening collapses behind you, like Chris was talking about when he was talking about Lord of the Rings. And now you only have one way to go and that's forward, you know? So that is literally a railroad with what I would call side, you know, side caverns. We'll, we'll uh, call it, you know. Unironically, Sean, I'm on. I'm on your team here because I think that uh, when we when we did the pitch, I'm convinced that I'm. I probably just did a bad description of what I was talking about. But the Diablo-inspired game is the game yeah. I think you guys wanted to play. And and that is, I would agree with you a hundred percent. Because that that has, would have had that first edition feel of what you're talking about. Yeah. Like you effectively, uh, in a town to buy whatever supplies you want, and then you're at a dungeon and you're gonna do the thing, and you know what yep. the thing is you, you need to do. And then you're back in the town again to get and whatever supplies yeah, you need to do, and you get your story element. Yeah. Yeah, you reprovision and you go do the next thing. You know, yeah. and that that's kind of you know what. What I look at, and it also depends on game system you're playing too. To me, D and D fifth edition, it's just so chaotic in my opinion. You know the way that it plays. It's if I were to do a fifth edition campaign, 
I would spend so much time building random encounters because of the way that it's built out. Literally, you would have charts upon charts, D20 charts, where they decide they want to go into the bar. D20, this is what happens. You know, you have to create those old random encounter tables with detail. Now you have to do it with detail because in first edition, and you used modules in first edition, the details were there for you. You could modify them any way you wanted to, but the core the core element was there. You know, you walk into a bar, it's going to describe the bar, and then the DM puts his, you know, his or her um, storyline behind it, you know, to what they're going to do in that bar. And But I think it depends on games. So I'll give you a good example. So if we were going to play Gamma World in any version of Gamma World, you guys wouldn't be starting in Gamma World. It would be Planet of the Apes, like the 1969 or 68 Planet of the Apes, where your astronauts, you know, on a mission in deep space, and all of a sudden you end up on this crazy Earth-like world that you later find out is Earth, but you're taking the skills that you have in today's world into that world because that has mutants. Well, I think it's really hard for a player to start out, you know, with mutant powers, you know, I, I think that that just kind of gives you too much. Where this way, if you started out, so, you know, your, your Taylor or your Brent or your, you know, the other astronauts, and you're going there, well, one was a scientist, one was a pilot, one was, you would use your common sense skills in that world, you know. Oh my God, you see a, a you know, a stop sign on the ground. You don't know it's a stop sign because it's faded, but it's shaped like a stop sign. And you've come across things that, you know, have like clubs that are attacking you. Well, I'm going to turn that into a shield. That's a common sense piece, you know. But in a Gamma World setting, if you start in that setting, that stop sign could be a relic that you would never touch because there's some kind of crazy, you know, crazy history, you know, from 300 years that you've been taught. And all stop signs are evil, you know, and so you wouldn't touch it. So... Like the the Star Wars RPG or whatever you want to call it, that Fantasy Flight made, that's more open. You have the module, you have the story in front of you, but it has a lot of openings. And if you're familiar enough, it's why I love Star Wars, like seeing Canto Bite, you know. So in my mind, I can imagine a casino like Canto Bite, and if I'm running something and players want to go to a casino, you already have that in your mind. You have it there because it's, you just describe Canto Bite or a smaller version. Um, so I think that one's a little more open. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones. Um, Cyberpunk is another open, you know. I, it's I was very, wondering if you were going to hit this. Or very not. sandboxy, but you would have to create railroading in that to get to whatever your storyline is. And and here's the deal. I think you have to have railroading in campaigns or in in modules and in campaigns and throughout, whether it be session to session or, you know, one session is railroaded, the next section is more sandboxy, then you go back to railroading, because there has to be a definitive reason why you're doing it. And the only way you can get to it is by putting it in front of them what they need to do. You know, and one of the things that... You know, if you have, let's say you have three objectives you have to hit before you go fight Strahd, because you got to get the weapons, right? You know, you got to get the weapons. So that's one objective. 
And you Which know that I going. Think, I don't think we. I mean, we kind of figured that out, but yes. Well, once again, I don't think we were. I don't think we went in. The only one who had an idea of it was uh, Greg. The rest of us kind of went into it, and we kind of followed his lead most of the way when we went through it. But we also know that he's played it before, so he had some knowledge. Well, he brought, he uh, DM'd it, but yeah, yeah. So he DM'd it. So. You kind of have a meta advantage because of him, and I think at the end of the day, we ended up following him more than making. I I, I, I think we did in a way because I agree that you kind of you did, but I don't know that it mattered that he. I think you would have ended up following Greg regardless of what campaign we were playing. Probably having sat and watched the dynamic of a group. Maybe if Alan had been in from the start, it could have been a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, now, see, but yeah. one of the, like, like for me, I toned myself back in that because I can become very, uh, not aggressive, but overbearing, you know, with wanting to, and it came out a little bit in that campaign, where if I think something is the way we should go, I will hammer, you know, I'll railroad it in there somehow, you know, yeah. with a party. It's a bit strange. I, ironically, I think that Greg was a reluctant leader. I don't think he wanted to have that role. Right. Um, oh, I, I agree yeah. with that. I do agree but with that. I, I would say uh, this is not a um, not uh, a disparaging term. I felt like you and Chad were both kind of like passengers players. You were happy to see where the group was going and do what the group was doing. You just wanted to play D&D and do the thing and yeah. had faith that the correct thing would happen in the story. Yeah. Like you, you didn't want to make it your story and do your thing. I, at no point did I ever feel like you were going to take the campaign by the scruff of the neck and be like, no, this is what's happening. Well, and agreed, but again, I don't think... I think it took me a long while to really figure out where the campaign was going. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but again, uh, that's the thing that... It, it comes back around to you wanted to play like you picked a sandbox game so that the campaign isn't going anywhere right if, right. You don't, so, if the players don't drive it all right maybe maybe this is makes it a little bit easier i didn't know curse of strahd was a sandbox game when i said "Ooh, yeah. let's play this all yeah. i had known about it i knew it was a legendary module from the original first and second edition of first edi- of dungeon dragon it was that kicked off the Ravenloft campaign setting. It was one that I had never played. And I know yeah. that everyone that I'd ever talked to about it uh, talks about that particular module with reverence. Sort of, sort of like the way they do with the Tomb of Annihilation. They talk about that with reverence as it's one of the best ones ever done. I'm like, oh, cool. I've never done it. Never picked it up. Never had the opportunity to touch it. Let's run it because I, I, it, they remade it for 5th edition. Let's go. I did not know going in that it was a sandbox. Didn't know that. <laughs> and even even though, even understanding that it was, like for me, and part of it is I missed sessions, you know, just with the way that my life is. I missed sessions, but it was, I just never, like for that module, and it wasn't your fault, Chris, or anybody's fault. It's just I never got my feet under, and I'm very judgmental because it's not the second person <laughs> It's, I could run a fifth edition campaign, but it would have to be 
first edition material. You know, I'd have to run it in Greyhawk. I'd have to run it in Ravenloft from the box set, you know, not because I'm not creative. It's just those are very compelling pieces when, you know, Undermountain, you know, the box set of Ruins of Undermountain, Forgotten Realms box set. It's a freaking well-built, and it's built by one of the people I like the least in D&D, but it's one of the best built modules, in my opinion, for a large, how would you put it, a, it's almost like a campaign in itself, you know, just, you know, going through the ruins of Undermountain is like a giant campaign in itself, you know, because it is huge that the caverns of Undermountain are gigantic, you know, when you get down to it. And, you know, and as a DM, the nice thing is that you have a built out campaign that you just add your own elements into, you know, you, you add what you want to, you add the fire giants that are located in the underworld there, you know, you, you do what you want with it, but it's not like Curse of Strahd or the Tiamat one. I read the Tiamat one and I don't, I think my son took the book, but I was going to throw it away. It was that bad. Ooh. Yeah. You know, and I even have the model, the, the wizard's model or whatever it is for the, the Tiamat model, you know, cause I was going to run it. I read it and I, I was sickened by it. It was just not fun to me. Mm. And, and, you know, I've read through parts of Curse of Strahd since, and it's just like, yeah, this isn't my cup of tea. I want total freaking detail in everything that I do. And to the point where whether you do something or not, but it's there, you know, for the players to do, you know, and the other thing is too, is to me, if so think about how I used to run tournaments, right? You know, they had to be done certain ways. And for me, modules or a session, you know, a, a whatever you want to call it, I call them modules. But for that storyline to go, I have to be able to have that storyline go. And what I mean by that, simply put, is if the players, so we're in a town, you start in a town, you get all your provisions, and then you go out in the world. And I need you to fight, you know, the Demigorgon at the end. So that's my end result. But in the in in there, I have five things that you have to do to either better yourselves to get to that point or, you know, just things that have to happen before you find Demigorgon. I'm going to find a way to make all those things happen. You know, whether it be you go into this cave where I had the next thing we needed to do was in a temple, I just move it to the cave. So it's literally railroading without the players knowing they're being railroaded. And that's something that, you know, I think good DMs do is, yes, your players want to have fun and they want to make choices, but you have to have them make choices that you need them or want them to make, not just open choices that take you to the lake way the hell across the map from where you want to be, because which could be next to number three, you know, town is number one, number two is here, number three is there, but you're not ready to go to number three yet because you haven't been to number two. Number two is what equips you to get to three and then three equips you to four and four gets you to five. You know, that's, that's how I view railroading, but I view railroading in an open setting. You know, I'm going to move things around. If you're going to go one way and I know you're going that way, I'm going to have it prepped and ready to go. You know, now I won't have all the staging may not be there, but, but it will be prepped. You'll be, you'll be fighting or talking to or doing whatever, what I need you to do there. And then, next stage point, you know, 
what was there before would move to the next stage point. And I think that that's kind of how you have to do it. And number one, time. You look at how much time it took us to get through Curse of Strahd because you're playing in, in two, one and a half to three hour chunks of time. And, you know, because we're all adults and we have lives, you have to you have to plan for that three hour chunk of time. Yes. So, yes, you do. And that's the hardest thing when it's open sandbox. I think open sandbox doesn't allow you to plan that well for that three hour chunk of time. That's true, because you never know what direction you're going to go. And whenever you go that direction, that could lead you down a giant rabbit hole. And oops, yeah. we're mid we're mid combat. We have to stop. That was one of the cool things about doing it over Roll20. You could quite literally just stop in the middle of a combat and just pick up where you left off. The hard part with that is, is remembering, coming back and remembering where you were in that combat, you know, because if oh. only the DM is taking notes, then the D, it's very heavy set to the DM to know where everything is at all the time. Where if you have players that are note taking and, you know, kind of like you were doing some of it, Ed, is you were taking notes and trying to hit the high points, you know, I was. with the lore and everything else. But the problem with lore in a game that goes two years and your sandbox wide open is that you may have heard the lore six months ago <laughs> or a year ago and really and truthfully not remember it. Well, that's why I've always been a note taker um, mm -hmm. for um, D&D for that reason. Because you're right, it could be a long span of time before that one little piece of information that you picked up in that one town is important later in the story. And if you didn't remember it, you didn't remember that guy's name, or you didn't remember the the poem or the story or the or or whatever that you saw on that cave wall one day. And right. if you don't have it, it I mean, depending on your DM, I've played with plenty of DMs like, well, you don't remember, no one wrote it down, guess no one remembers which I always have genuinely bothered me because we, this is the other conversation we got into at the, uh, the store the other day is the difference between what my character knows and what you I know. know. Yeah. Because the example of course that they gave is like, Oh, well, what the, one of the things that's uh, they were talking about a player that had cheated in their group. Um, they were playing on roll 20 as well. And what is going on behind me? <laughs> I think I have dogs going up and down, going to, going to bed. Sorry. My apologies. Um, so the example that they provided was they had a player that was cheating in their group and what had happened was they were playing on roll 20. They were also talking in discord and chat. And then they had a side chat. The players had their own side chat going on on Xbox live. And one of the players said, Ooh, we're fighting this monster. Went and looked the stats up online and posted it into the other chat so that all the players knew the right ways to fight that monster. Well, of course the other players in the group were, honest players and they told the dm about it secretly on the sly like hey that's what this player is doing um the character that character wouldn't know it even if you go in as a player and know and know every animal or every creature in the monster's manual and how to defeat them your character doesn't know that but the reverse of that is it's entirely possible that my character knows something that i don't right and that's that's where the dm has to has to understand that, you know, has to have a leniency to that. But I think for, even for a DM, it's hard to do over a two-year campaign, you know, or a two-year module or a two-year book. Oh, sure, 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 sure. You know, it's, you know, where basically as a DM, you have to, you know, build like check sheets and things like that of information you've given, you know, information you want them to know and things like that to where six months from now, you can be able to check that and you know know that they have visited that and know what they've what they should know 
and be able to read it back to them, you know, semi-easily. Also, don't make it so complicated, you know, where it's a a three-page letter that they have to memorize. Right. You know? If it wasn't a player handout or something like that. Yeah. You know, which is kind of cool about Roll20 with what we did is you had the handouts, but how many times did Chris have to reiterate what it was instead of us just going through all the stuff, which happened a lot, you know? We were not good. We as players were not good preparers for our game night yeah you know I, I, i'll not say anything on that it's fine no comment <laughs> all right Ed, know, but, give, us uh, your, but, give us your take but just before you move on ed sorry um sure. i do think that if you want to play a sandbox as a player you have to be more engaged in I don't think you can drop in and out of a sandbox game. I think you need to be playing the game when you're not playing the game kind of thing. But you know, when you're in that mindset of like, you do it for Magic and 40k or X-Wing and when you're doing it, you're building lists. Like, I, the reference I'd always use is when I had a paper round as a 13-year-old, I'd be making, I'd memorized my Warhammer Army's Undead Army book and was making different iterations of my 2,000-point army while it's mindless and wandering rain. I was focused on the game when I wasn't playing the game. Yeah. Right. That's the kind of engagement you want in a sandbox game. If you're not getting that, I think the railroad gives you the easier outs and the easier options of, like... And this is a slight tangent, sorry, but, like, the railroad doesn't have to appear to be a railroad. Correct. Like, there's two doors. Which one do you pick? Spoiler, there's only one door. Right. There's always only one door, but there's five that you can choose from. Yeah. You know, and that's to me why it's that controlled railroad. You know, being able to being able to do something you know, outside of what you had originally planned, but this is the session that you needed that you needed to do it in to move you to the next step. You know, like I talked about before, you have to do it. So you have to be, as a DM, be flexible to move. You're still giving them five door choices, but they're only choosing one door because there is only one door. All right, Ed. So what's, what's your thoughts on it? So I, I think my thoughts on it, I think I kind of echo a lot of the thoughts that are being said here in the fact that if you really want to have a sandbox campaign that takes buy-in from all of the players, um, from a player perspective, you have to kind of go into that knowing that the onus is on you to make it what you want it to be. And the DM's not going to hold your hand. He's not going to throw, you know, he's not going to guide you down the path. If you choose not to go down the path, you choose not to go down the path and you spend three sessions playing Village Simulator, that because that's what you're choosing to do. Um, I think they can be more fun. I think that if you have, if, that is what the players are looking to get out of a game. Like I want the sandbox I experience. I want to be able to just do whatever it is I want to do and work my way towards it. It can be one of the most fun ways to play the game. However, in my experience, I feel like that's not a majority of players. That's what they think they want, but it's not what they want. They think they want that, but what they really want is they want to be at least handheld a little down the path. They want the cool story. They want the cool big bad at the end. They want to know that they're working towards a goal to an end. They don't think that they know that until they find out later 
oh, I didn't, we could have done all this other cool stuff, but because we made the wrong choices. Well, why didn't you stop us? Well, it's it's your world. This is your choices. If you chose not to go and stop the guy from invading the village, you missed your opportunity to to meet one of the big bads of the campaign. And now all those villagers are dead. And it's a shame because one of those villagers was going to lead you to this, and then you were going to kind of go there. Like it, it, So in my opinion, I think most players love the idea I, I personally don't like the fact that railroading has a bad connotation because I think there's a lot of fun to be had in a pseudo railroady kind of way. If it is dressed correctly, if it makes the ch- players feel like they have the choices, it can be just as much fun. Yeah, and I think I here's what I think, you know, to add on to your thought there is I think for a a campaign session, whatever has to be railroaded with the understanding that players know they're getting railroaded, but they don't feel like they're getting railroaded. Like they feel like they have choice, you know, it's the, it's the matrix concept, you know, it's, do you really have a choice? You know, and that's kind of the whole premise of it. You know, is it really a choice that you have the actions that you take? Are they really your choice or are they pre-planned? You know, and, and, in any town, if you ever go into a town, should always be open to the players. You know, have your town built oh, out. Sure. Know what the hell you have in the shops. You know, if you're only going to know what's in 10 shops, only have 10 fucking shops. Don't have 50, have 10. Or, you know, do the Matrix elemental piece where they're all just carving copies of each other with maybe one different thing, you know. And it's, one, of, one of the things that I always find interesting to me is can the players tell the difference between a choice that was made by them or a choice that, that was made for them? And a good, if it's, a good, a good DM, they will never know. Exactly. That kind of goes into that. You know, there's two doors, which one's the right door. It's a spoiler alert. There's only one door, the exact same thing. If it, if they feel as if they had agency over every step of the way, what difference does it make? If they were railroaded, I will, or what? I will say every time I gave you guys full agency, you got old people killed. <laughs> yeah, we were very good at that. We were very, very. Good. I wasn't even there. <laughs> but you were there in a way because the choices were made. You stayed. The we choice, were. The, you are correct. That is a correct statement. We split the party, and bad things happened. And we chose to do that, right? For whatever reason. And conceptually, that's kind of where sandbox games go, you know, in a sandbox, true sandbox game, those choices will have consequences, you know, where in a semi sandbox or, or you don't know you're being railroaded game, the choices you make are of the DMs choosing, but you don't know that the DM is choosing them for you. Yes. You know, and that's the thing is that, you know, if you're, you know, the story, it's the storyteller to the story absorber. You know, if I'm a storyteller, I need my story to go a certain way. Right. You know, I write the book and people need, you know, I want people to read the book the way that I wrote it, not the way that they perceive it. And I'm going to take one caveat to what we're talking about, but it's like Star Wars fans. I think the problem with Star Wars fans and a lot of, a lot of genre fans like Star Wars is the fact that people, so the internet is a bad thing to begin with, but (laughs) everybody has a theory 
you know, their own fanfic is being built in their head. And when something like The Last Jedi comes out and it doesn't meet their fanfic or the way that they they believe a character exists or should exist or should die a certain way, they get angry about it because it's not meeting what they themselves believe it should be. They're not listening to the storyteller. They are they are putting their own you know, their own headcanon into it rather than listening to the storyteller, you know, and I get it. Endeared characters, you know, you play D and D your characters be, should become endeared to you. You know, they, they should, they should become like a part of you, not a, not a corporal part of you, but a part of you, you know, to where you care about your characters, because if you don't, then you're just going to be like the guy who rolls up 20 bards because bards die so quickly, you know? Yeah. And and that's the thing to me is is that's the problem I think people have with role playing games too, is if a person has an idea in their head, so I want to be a ranger and I want to have an elephant as my pet, and the DM doesn't give him that ele- elephant, then that guy that person isn't going to have as much fun because he's already he's already preconceived what he wants out of it, rather than taking what the author is giving them out of it. you know, and that's the hardest part. You know, especially with adults, because, you know, there's a lot of things that influence the way that we think. But that's one of the, the hard parts, I think, with DMing today, unless you're voice actors and you're getting paid to do it. <laughs> yeah, unless you're professional voice actors, yes. Yeah, and you're, you are actually getting paid to play D&D. I don't think that any of it, you know, I'm a person like with Chris's, with Chris's deal, I just took it the way that it was laid out. That's that's how I took it. I opened myself up, and that's why it probably fell more on Greg and Alan to lead us than me being vocal. But when I got that idea in my head, boy, was I vocal about it, you know, because, because my head canon overrode Chris's story. I didn't have a story. I had a, I had a setting and a world, and you guys just got to live in it. Right. But you did have a that, story behind that world, too. I mean... Oh, but, 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 but the story's happening regardless of what you do. Like the let's see, um, so like you you guys were playing village simulator, so the tax man was coming and then you left. He still came and murdered people. Sure it is, and that and that's how you got your braces. Yeah, yeah. The, like, like you, the clock didn't stop. You know, the world um, clock didn't stop. Valaki, there was um, a a coup in Valaki while you guys weren't there. Um, like a bunch of people got hung, and like uh, there was a lot of bad stuff that went on in Valaki. Um, all of the like extra story stuff with the dryads and the uh, the the cults and stuff like that was all ongoing, progressing without you. Uh, there was lots of um, of stuff going on. I like that level of realism, though. Like, to be honest with you, it's not like the monsters are just sitting there and they're waiting for you to get there. Yeah, it turns out if you leave a room, the monsters don't go back to the station and yeah. like, reset the room. Right. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's the thing where, as a DM, you have to continue the clock. You know? Yeah. If, like, if we're not in the town, when people are, when the coup happens, we can't do anything to do anything with the coup. Yeah. But if we're there at that time, then maybe we stop the coup or, or help the coup, depending upon where our allegiance is. And like the the were elements of story story beats there to let you know that like 
stuff was going on and things were happening, guys didn't pick up on them, so it doesn't matter. Right. Uh, we didn't ask many questions. Um, or we didn't ask the right questions is probably more correct. Uh, not even. I, I just see the thing. I don't. I'm not a fan of locking stuff behind like dice roll successes and like the correct the paywall. The, the, the yeah. paywall of, of RPG. Yeah. Because it just leads to bad tackers like, oh man, we're obviously going to find this key. It's right there. And that's the one place you never look. And then um, we just all grind to a halt until I just say, why don't you go and look there, idiots? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, did you ever play Eye of the Beholder and Eye of the Beholder 2 on computers? Oh, the SSI? The, those the SSI the gold games? box games. Yes. So, so there's a funny thing in them that, so I was watching a video on them the other day because I bought them on Steam and I was kind of laughing because in that game, you have to carry daggers with you because there's keyholes that you shove daggers into that opens secret passages in that game that you have to open. So if you don't have daggers, you can't get any farther in the game because you're not carrying daggers. And that's where, to me, you know, it's a great example of, as a DM, if I build a lock that you have to impress a certain dagger into, and you don't have the dagger, as a DM, do I change the way that that is and find a way for you to get into it? Or do I just say, fuck it, and you guys can't go there? You know, which type of DM are you when it comes to those types of, you know, those situations? You're at the secret door. You know that there's potentially a secret door there. There's a outline of a knife. <laughs> you don't have a knife. Oh, you know, darn. you know, or, or a good example of that was a national treasure with the pipe. If you ever saw National Treasure with the Michonne pipe, great, great game or great they movie. Had to, they, Sorry. they had to have that pipe to open that that door. And if they, I mean, didn't have the, the correct pipe, reference, Sean, is have you seen the Rise of Skywalker with the Sith dagger? Oh, I just don't even want to go oh, there. I went into that movie totally open-minded and I came out of it like that is a terrible movie. As as a movie, now what what it helps me with is it advances my Star Wars knowledge as far as scenery and things like that if I ever run the the uh role-playing game. But it's a shitty movie altogether. You know, and I'm a huge fan of Rise of Skywalker and yes, I get everybody's arguments about it. Luke, you know, they misused Luke, but he was misused in the first film anyway. Um, well, he, he was barely, he wasn't even, he was barely saying. there, but yeah. And and that is the way, you know, to me, they should have just rebooted. But, you know, the thing about it was, is that I enjoyed as a movie, it's a great movie. If you can take, take any, any element or belief or headcanon out of it and you watch that movie, it's a very good movie with very good elements in it very good scenes there's some stupid shit in it too but there are good elements in it in that that movie that most people hate because they just can't get past the headcanon i I stand by my current stance on that film and the fact that it is a good movie it is a bad star wars movie yeah well i mean it wasn't really none of the last three movies were Star Wars movies. Yeah. Let me get down to it. So, I, where where my level of shock was coming up and why the word game came out of my mouth, are you aware that Eye of the Beholder was ported over to the Super NES? No, I did not know that. 
I didn't know that either, which means it's probably sitting on multiple of my devices that are currently emulating games. And I now know the next because I have not played this in forever. Yeah. I have the Beholder was on the Super NES and the Sega CD. So yep. either one of those versions, I think I think Super NES is probably the direction I'm gonna go. Um, and I, I, I had it on, you know, DOS. The DOS Same. Disc. I had I had the box with the floppy disk. That 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 was the version yeah. that I played it on. But if it's the same game, oh man, do I know the next game that I'm gonna sit down and play through? But it's a railroad game. So it if is, you want it you, is you want to go once you go into the the, the sewers you're railroading that game the whole way through. Sure. sure. You have a choice of going left or right, but you are 100% railroaded in that game. I'm simply stating that it is a nostalgia kick for me to be. Oh yeah. To see my example, but my example with it was that's a great example of a railroading game. Sure. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That is, that is 100% railroading. And you know, how do you, how do you get around it? You know, if you've built it that way, how do you get around it? And I just think good DMs find ways to get their story told. You know, if you're a sandbox DM or you're running it as a sandbox, then your story's being told because you're letting the players tell the story. I will not disagree, but I will um, caution against DMing to tell your story because it's not your story. Well, no, no, no. Here's the deal it's my story. But they are able to turn the pages of the story. It's the I, you know, it's, I it's agree. Whatever, I what understand what what, what you're saying. What was the adventure? Sean? Adventure by numbers or whatever they were. Yeah, but so I'll frame it that that sets it up in my opinion with a more adversarial um, feel to it because like you when you played those um, tell your own adventure books, you are playing against a book. You want to beat the book. Well, they're not yep. in camera view, but mine are up there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, I want to get to the end of a DM story. I, and this again, this is a preference. It's not not a right or a wrong. That's why I'm not. It's not a an argument or anything like that. But I don't care if we get to the end of the content I've written because I'm trying to enable the players to tell the story in my world. But. You're just you know, giving them you're giving them the stage, but you're allowing them to write the story that's played on that stage. Yeah, and like but I also come from that different world where the stories were written by other people. Yeah. And it was their story. And that's you know, the old modules, and I always go back to that, you know. The old modules to me are the greatest things ever made for D D. You know, that's just my opinion. My opinion, because they tell a story that I just enhance the players enhance that story. And that's, that's how I look at it is the players are enhancing the story or they just TPK one of the two, you know, it's like, I don't like Strad because it's not the player's story at all. It's arena's story. Um, but I, I don't mind the idea of like having your, your level five threat, your level ten threat, and your level twenty threat planned out, and like these are what are going, what we're going to steer towards. I'm not saying that like that's a bad thing, but like I don't know that. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a relatable example here. Um, let's say we're playing um, 
a, a Warhammer 40,000 game set in the Horus Heresy. Like, there's going to be a showdown at Terra. I don't care if you guys want to go and have Titans fighting at Beta Garmin. If you mm. want to be like chase, hunting down the uh, the Traitor Legion's homeworlds and purging all of those as like a punishment squad, you know, a vengeance squad. If you want to be like Russ and just fly off and do your own thing, or and do your own thing, be, be Gulliman and set up your own unremembered empire. Or if you want to be a traitor, <laughs> you, know, you could be on the traitor side. Like the story is there, but well, so the plot points are there. The story you tell with those plot points uh, is up to you. I think is a a good way of describing what uh, what I believe is the correct way to do it. By that, I mean what I would like to play in, and as a consequence of that, the type of game I like to run. Because you run the type of game you'd like to play in. But yeah, that's not to say you're wrong, John. I'm not trying to, you know what I mean? It's not, you can't be wrong because it's your preference of how you like to play. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what I'm talking about. The way I like to play is different from the way that you like to play. Yeah. You know, to me, you know, and as a player, it's harder for me to play in your type of game because when I feel like there's too many choices, we'll call it. Yeah, and I... I, I you kind of if, spin out of control. If we if we RPG again, you will not have that problem, Sean. Yeah. Because I won't run that type of game because I know that it's not what... I never believe people's words, only believe their actions. Right. I want to have all of the choices, Ed says. No, you don't. You want to have two choices, which are both the same choice, and then get to go and have fun. Spend more right. time having fun, less time thinking about how to have fun. Right. Uh, and I, and think, that, I don't recall saying that. <laughs> no, but what, so what I mean is... Like, I know. You're using me as an you, example. I understand. No, I said it's not even an attack. I think you would, have, you, you would have had more fun had I made the choices easier and more distinct, even though there isn't actually a choice. Like choice right. A and choice B, choice B both lead to the same point in the flow diagram, which is what Sean's talking about. Right. But you would have had more fun if it was A or B, go, and then we're into the next session fully and you're doing the thing, rather than having 30, 40 minutes of, oh, well, we could do this, or the this, and or this, or this. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then finally coming to a consensus because, and, you know, Greg had to do what Greg had to do, but Greg said, well, this might be better for what we need to do, you know. Yeah. You know, which was smart because, you know, once again, it comes with the way that our, our time so, was set up. Ironically, I, mean, I think Greg had the most fun playing Village Simulator with you guys. <laughs> That was fun. Yep. Yeah, definitely interesting. <laughs> you know, I had fun in other aspects of it. You know, the <laughs> village simulating stuff, that's the boring stuff to me in any game. You know, it just, it, it wears me down just because I need my brain to move. You know, I'm 80, I have ADHD. So when we're focused too heavily on one thing, it's like, God damn it. You know, let's move to the next. Move on, move on. We're done. Yeah. All right. I think that's a good place to to put a pin in this one. Good. I was what I was worried that this wasn't gonna have as much meat on it, but I figured once I get you guys talking about D and D campaigns, I think that that actually went quite well. So 
I am going to bid adieu for the evening. It's also almost time for me to go to bed, and I've got to get. And I could still possibly get another phone call tonight because I am on call. So, Sean, always good hanging out with you, my friend. It's great to be here. And of course, Chris, always good to hang out with you. Do you have anything you'd like to add at the end here? No, all of the usual stuff. Obviously, the Discord is uh, going well. It's uh, there's people playing X Wing in there at the moment in uh, in voice chat. So I might Ooh. go and spy on them later. Um, but yeah, it's it's a fun little place. Come and join that, hang out, um, talk about games. We'll we'll be posting a bunch of 40k stuff, uh, which reminds me, I need to chat to you, Ed, once we're done. Um, uh, but yeah, that's been great. Obviously, um, thank you to all the patrons for your support again. You can find that at uh, Dice Hate Productions on Patreon. Um, did Dice Hate Productions? I might, I might just lie to you. <laughs> did you just give your own wrong website? No, it's, it's just. Patreon.com slash dice it. Yeah, it's easy. Don't even need the productions. There you go. It, 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 it's called dice it productions. Yeah, it's fine. But the URL is shorter because I wanted to save you all time. But no, that's everything I have. Excellent. Oh, no, I lied to you. We gave away the Asage Ventress uh, to one of our patrons and Dave Beatty won. We rolled for it on. Good on um the deployment garrison which i still haven't edited yet because it's a hard one to edit lots of mistakes in that one um <laughs> so i'll be editing this episode and that episode at the same time fun times um but there will potentially be another giveaway i'm in the uk um this at the end of this month so um it depends how all of that goes we need to sort out um how late I'm staying up slash how early I'm getting up for our recording schedules while I'm in the UK. Because there's a significant time difference. But it's achievable. I think um, I've done it in the past at like 4am. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But yeah, that's me. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this one. Who's next on the docket? Chris, that makes Chris, it yours, does it not? Next. It does, yeah. So, Any ideas? Or are, you, are you just going to spring it on us the day of? It depends if I if we're doing it while I'm in the UK, I might do something different to if we're doing it when we get back. So sure, we'll try to plan a shorter one for you yeah. if you're you're away. And, yeah. and here here's one thing too: if you're away and you can't fit it in, Ed and I can just do a show that'll fit in the schedule. Hundred percent. We, we still can, have, we, we can, can talk whole... fish and steam decks. And... I was going to say we still have yet to record that episode. It'll be yeah. great. All right, that's going to do it for this one. As always, guys, it's always great to hang out with you. And until next time, fly casually. Thanks for listening to a Lack of Focus podcast brought to you by Dice Hate Productions.